Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and it is a beautiful Sunday, the 25th of September 2022. I hope the weather is as nice where you are as it is where I am today. And today's episode is full of good news, good political news, good ideological news, and particularly good news if you're a Geelong Football Club fan. Of course, Geelong decimated the Swannies yesterday in the AFL Grand Final, which was a battle between the mothers. My mum, a huge Geelong fan, and Van's mum, a huge Swans fan. Unfortunately for Barb and for Van, the Swans went down. Fortunately for my mum, that meant the Catters got up. So... What other good news do we have? We have heaps of good news today to share. The cashless debit card, which Labor campaigned against, which unions campaigned against, which communities campaigned against, will be abolished in the coming week of Parliament. This is an inherently racist and inherently classist program that saw communities in Western Australia, South Australia, Queensland and the Northern Territory forced onto what was Orwellianly called income management through a privatised process where people who required support, social security, were forced to use a cashless debit card, which could only be used at certain locations and certain providers, which of course cut out the entire cash economy for so many people. The program was found not to have any substantial financial benefit to the Commonwealth after an audit report. And so not only does it damage communities, it doesn't even provide anything to the budget bottom line. Truly a piece of ideological warfare against working class people in this country. Labor will abolish it. It has made that announcement. Details of that announcement have been released today by Amanda Rishworth and Bill Shorten, the Ministers for Social Services, uh, respectively. And not only is it being abolished, but new programs are being put in place. million worth of investment in drug and alcohol programs, in locally developed programs to support employment and skills training, uh, additional support for communities to develop local jobs and local skills. Fantastic labour, people-centred policy. Exactly the kind of thing that the union movement campaigned for. Uh, And of course, you know, we talk about the union movement a lot on our show because it is fundamentally part of our social fabric. And I'll come to more about that shortly. The other piece of good parliamentary news is that a federal ICAC is coming. Legislation looks like it will be introduced this week, possibly as early as Tuesday. Now, of course, I was disappointed to see David Pocock attack the Albanese government for having conversations with the Dutton opposition about a federal ICAC. It's incumbent on government to reach out across the aisle and engage with the opposition. We were very critical when the Morrison government refused to do that. We were very critical of them for that. Now, we would be hypocrites if we said it was okay for the Albanese Labor government to simply pass legislation all the time without discussing it with Peter Dutton and the coalition. Of course, that doesn't mean Labor should pass legislation just 
the way Peter Dutton wants it. But David Pocock and I think Helen Haynes have rushed to judgment on this. It is incumbent on the government to have discussions with the opposition, as they will with the crossbench. They've already said that. This will be a process where Parliament will decide the future of a federal ICAC, as it should be, as it should do. It's not going to be David Pocock and the Greens and the Teals who get to decide what the federal ICAC looks like, at least not in its entirety and not in isolation. I think it was very interesting on Insiders today when Catherine Murphy said, wouldn't it be good if everyone in Parliament voted for the federal ICAC legislation? And ultimately, that is what the government will be aiming for with its bill. It will be aiming for a consensus position, something that delivers proper, robust, transparent, anti-corruption authorities at the same time as being universally accepted as a good thing for Australia and really the next stage of our democratic evolution. To come out early, swinging, suggesting that this is a stitch-up, that it's a deal between the two major parties and, you know, that it goes against the election and all that, I, I find that very... Uh, naive, quite frankly. I think it's a bit naive to suggest that. I think David Pocock's better than that. I think Helen Haynes is better than that. And I think they will have a big say in what the federal ICAC ends up looking like. But we have to accept, we have to accept that it is incumbent on government to consult with the opposition on major structural reforms, particularly structural reforms to our democracy, which is what a federal ICAC will be. And I think we should all aim, as Catherine Murphy says, to have a federal ICAC that has universal support from the parliament. So hopefully that's what we'll end up with. Now, of course, uh, James Morrow from uh, the Murdoch Press uh, has criticised the whole process and says it's being rushed and all the rest of it. We should remember federal ICAC has been discussed in this country for longer than we have been running the week on Wednesday. In fact, it's been discussed for well over a decade. And to suggest that somehow or another, a two-month window for submissions on the legislation is too short a period of time when the previous government would run windows of a few days, uh, quite famously ran a consultation over the Christmas break on uh, legislation that was going to impact thousands of of women and service providers uh, and really only extended that once uh, people made significant noise about it. You know, a two-month window to get your submission in. Most organisations who have a view about this will be able to do this fairly quickly because it's been on the table for such a long time. I don't think people are going to be surprised by Labor's uh, legislation. Not that I've seen it, but frankly, the principles of it have been discussed in public for some time. So that's good news. We'll see that this week. Hopefully, it's something the whole parliament supports. Hopefully, people don't try and politicise this. This is about improving our democracy after all. But of course, politics hasn't gone away. And Jane Hume was on Insiders today. Uh, and what what a performance. I have to say, first of all, uh, 
David Spears didn't let her off the hook. Uh, David Spears asked the question about the fuel excise cut uh, because, of course, Jane Hume was in government, was a cabinet minister when the Morrison government made a temporary cut to fuel excise, and yet the coalition, Jane Hume and Peter Dutton, have not uh, said that they would support it being continued, but have also not said they support the government uh, continuing with the previous government's position of a temporary cut. And David Spears pushed her on this a number of times. At one point, Jane Hume responded with, we don't have policies, we are in opposition, not in government. Now, this has gone off on social media, as you can imagine, because it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing to say, right? Now, James Morrow and Samantha Maiden on the couch, uh, particularly Sam Maiden, said that they thought David Spears was a bit harsh on Jane Hume. Well, let's be really clear. He could have been a lot harsher. Because when a senior member, the shadow finance minister, senior member of the coalition, senior member of the opposition, says we don't have policies, we are in opposition, not in government, he kind of let that go. He stayed, he stuck to his questions about her opinion and her views and her policies. He didn't go, hang on a minute, are you genuinely trying to say that in opposition, you don't have to have policies? Are you genuinely trying to say that the only role of opposition is to oppose the government? Because fundamentally, that's what she was trying to get away with, right? She's trying to get away with saying they don't have policies. And let's be really clear here. They do have policies. They have extensive policy positions. They have a whole page on their website. You can go to liberal.org.au slash articles and find a series of policy positions that they have created in the form of media releases, most of which are attacking unions, by the way. So if you're opposed to the Liberal Party, I suggest that you go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, and join your union. Because if you look at the Liberal Party policy pages, you'll see that they actually oppose much of the kind of policy positions we talk about here on the week on Wednesday. They oppose multi-employer bargaining. They oppose raising wages. They oppose uh, assisting workers to come together and bargain as a larger collective, whether it be in childcare or in construction or whatever it might be. In fact, their policy positions are quite simply attack, attack, attack. They have they have one positive policy, you might say, on their page. And that is a mirror of Labor's policy position, which it announced at the Jobs and Skills Summit, which was to allow retirees to earn more money before they lost part of their pension. Now, of course, David Spears made reference to that in his Insiders interview. His interviewing is becoming very, very good. He made reference to that as an expenditure and did the opposition finance minister, Jane Hume, think the government should spend more or spend less in the budget. And of course, she basically dodged around that. She said that that one policy that the Liberals do have, which is the same as the Labor policy, is not really an increase in spending. It's a really bizarre mindset that the coalition has. It's as though they still haven't realised why they lost government. They, Jane Hume insisted on the fallacy that they had put the budget back on a path to surplus. 
many of the economics wonks on Twitter immediately put up the graphs that show there was no pathway to surplus uh, over the next decade in the budget. There was no point at which the Morrison government was going to have us back to surplus. People have pointed out that this windfall uh, that Van and I discussed on this week's uh, week on Wednesday, where commodity prices have gone up, income tax receipts have gone up, but also the expenditure has gone down, uh, is partly because of Morrison's underspend and underinvestment uh, in ongoing programs and projects, all of which Jane Hume uh, sort of brushes off uh, and demands to know what Labor's plan is. Labor has been very clear about its plan. There will be an early budget in October to outline that in more detail. Quite frankly, getting a bit sick of hearing Angus Taylor and Jane Hume talk about Labor's uh, economic problems when they spent a decade creating those problems. We know this is the case. The union movement campaigned for 10 years about job security and wage growth. And what have we seen? Record numbers of Australians working multiple jobs, wage cuts at the same time as record low unemployment and record high productivity. These are the symptoms of a very sick economic structure. We have massive receipts for our natural resources. At the same time, locally, we're having to pay more for energy and fuel and food. These are all symptoms and signs of an economy that has been mismanaged over a long period of time and is in need of structural reform. People keep coming back to the stage three tax cuts. Jim Chalmers, in an interview with Peter Fitzsimmons, makes the point that there are three budgets between now and when those are supposed to take effect. And there are urgent pressing matters that have to be dealt with between now and then. And I totally agree. I totally agree that we should get rid of the stage three tax cuts, and I totally agree that legislating to remove them isn't the number one priority because there is a long period of time before they're due to come into effect. There are other things that need to be done now. There are other levers that can be pulled now, and they should be dealt with, and they should be removed. We cannot afford to give the wealthiest Australians more money at the same time as working-class Australians, Australians who rely on the social safety net, are struggling to pay their bills, are working multiple jobs, and are suffering from pay cuts. And of course, we know Labor has policies around uh, early childhood education. We know during the pandemic when uh, childcare was made free, that was in fact deflationary in on the economy. There are lots of things the government can do and is planning to do that will help both inflation, but also reset some of these economic structures. And I and I raise this in the context that we are likely to see between now and the budget in May 2023, Labor governments in every state and territory and at a Commonwealth level except for Tasmania. Polling came out this week in both Victoria and New South Wales that shows Labor in a commanding position. In New South Wales, the Labor primary is 43%. The Liberal coalition primary is 30%. 
In Victoria, it's 42 versus 28. The coalition in Victoria's primary has dropped seven points, which is a huge drop. Less than one in three voters in Victoria would consider voting for the Liberal coalition. In New South Wales, the coalition's a little bit better, but not much. Now, what does this mean? This means that the mechanisms of government will align. There will be opportunity to do much more structural economic reform. And you can see that that's what people want. In New South Wales, the New South Wales coalition under Dominic Perrottet has consistently and continuously attacked working people. You know, whatever James Morrow or Samantha Maiden might think on Insiders, the reality is that Dom Perrottet has tried to do over rail workers, has tried to silence nurses and teachers, has tried to cut the wages of public sector workers, and has continuously picked fights with the workers of New South Wales. In Victoria, Matthew Guy has threatened to scrap multi-billion dollar public transport programs, has talked about hospital funding as though he's going to do it, then he might do it, then it's up to a certain amount, but that's not necessarily all there is. He's been unclear. His own chief of staff had to resign under a very dark cloud. Really all the Liberals in Victoria have wanted to do is talk about Dan Andrews. Well, the reality is that the Victorian economy is the strongest in the country. Unemployment is low. Wages in many parts of the state are rising. We've in fact weathered the storm in a way that New South Wales could only wish to have done. At the same time, Yes, there are clearly lots of investments in Queensland. We talked about the green hydrogen, green ammonia corridor that the Queensland Labor government is building in central Queensland. We've talked before about the electric highway and the offshore kelp forest in Western Australia. There are jobs being created. We've talked about the transition for Collie. There are jobs being created. There are new industries being created in Labor states. Meanwhile, New South Wales has a government that attacks its workers and Victoria has an opposition that simply wants to talk about things in a frame that frankly, nobody cares about anymore, Matthew Guy. You know, it's a very interesting time in Australian politics. The, the discourse has shifted. I saw yesterday a very interesting set of footage. Gil McLaughlin, the CEO of the AFL, sitting between Kerry Stokes and Lachlan Murdoch. Now, the commentators at the AFL didn't mention Lachlan Murdoch once. They talked about Kerry Stokes. Of course, it's a Channel 7 show. It's a Channel 7 production, and Kerry Stokes and his family owns Channel 7. But Gill was talking to Lachlan Murdoch pretty much every time the camera looked at them. And Lachlan Murdoch and the Murdoch family have, as we've said before, had a disproportionate influence on Australian politics for a long, long time, as has Kerry Stokes in WA. Now, for the first time, possibly since the rise of both Kerry Stokes and Rupert Murdoch, that influence is waning. Yes, they still control vast amounts of mainstream media, but now the endorsement from the Murdoch media is not enough 
to see you over the line. Scott Morrison learned that the hard way, and it looks like Dominic Perrottet and Matthew Guy in New South Wales and Victoria might do the same. Every day the Herald Sun attacks Dan Andrews. Every day the Australian jumps in behind them. Every day the Daily Telegraph attacks Labor. Every day the Daily Telegraph praises Dominic Perrottet. They'll continue to do that between now and elections in November and in March, respectively. We can expect that to be the case. But as long as people join their union, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. Listen to podcasts like this and share them with friends and talk about the issues and engage with what's really going on. We can break down the stranglehold of the Murdoch media. Of course, Van and I will do a week on Wednesday live at the Melbourne Fringe on the 12th of October. You can get your tickets online. They Prices start as low as $15. Uh, we're going to have an in, uh, uh, interactive component to that uh, week on Wednesday live. So hopefully you'll come along and check that out. We will also broadcast it. Uh, so if you are not in Melbourne on that day, you can listen to it. We have had requests to do other cities. We'll see how this one goes. At the moment, ticket sales are looking pretty good. So get in quick uh, and hopefully we can do more. But there's a way in which we can engage and continue the conversation beyond simply the James Morrows, the Samantha Maidens, the Murdochs and the Kerry Stokeses. And that is to engage through our unions, to engage through independent media, through media that is not controlled by tycoons and robber barons. That's what I want to say. And I want to say this. Congratulations to the MUA, who celebrated 150 years this week. The Maritime Union of Australia has been at the forefront of building the social wage and social conditions of employment in this country. There was a time not so long ago where people, mostly men, would line up outside the gate and the foreman would pick who would get a shift that day. And there was a time where the wives and daughters of those men would line up in the evening and the foreman would pick which wife or daughter essentially got bartered for shifts the following day. How do I know this? Because Bob Hawke told me this story, told me this story at a function where he was speaking to a room full of union leaders and said that while he had never been a communist, it was in that moment when he understood why people could become communists. The MUA broke down that system of employment, broke down that system of exploitation, and created in Australia some of the safest, most productive and properly remunerated dock workers in the world. So a huge congratulations to the MUA on its 150th anniversary. And of course, our solidarity to all the workers who are taking action to improve safety, wages and job security this week and in every week. Now, Vannon will join me again for the week on Wednesday this week. Look at that. We've made it through the whole period of the Queen's uh, passing without even having to do a special deep dive. I hope you've enjoyed the week on Wednesday and this edition of the Weekend Wrap. And until next time, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.